Hey, everyone, and welcome back to Inside Update, brought to you by InsideInvestigator.org, nonprofit journalism to root out corruption in Connecticut. It's been another busy few weeks here, and we have three topics to talk about. Uh, some fun ones, I think. Uh, there's, I don't know of any other outlet writing about the funeral and death industry, and that's really where we're going to start, talking about Trisha's investigation on Sunday. Uh, you're dead. Now what? Um, it's just so fun. It, it, it It's a topic that's relevant so fun. to everyone. Uh, yeah, fun, is, fun might be the word. We're also going to talk about <laughs> Uh, an ongoing EV debate, so electric vehicle debate. Some folks are saying that this mandate is too much too soon. We're going to talk to Mark about his coverage and uh, also some more recent updates since that article has already come out. And then finally, a COVID-era gun rights case that was heard by an appeals court. So let's get back to the uh, <laughs> ever-present topic of death. Uh Trisha, you took a look at this. I know this was kind of a funky topic. We talked about many different avenues this could go, and you found a human angle. What was that like? Uh, it was actually really interesting and a little bit luck of the draw. Um, you know, one of the things that we have to do when we're trying to find sources is just sort of like cold call people, uh, just reach out and be like, do you want to talk to me about a thing that you deal with all the time? And sometimes they say yes, which is always very nice. Um, and with this one, it was, you know, trying to find funeral directors you could talk about. Connecticut's laws and, you know, the various traditions that they have to deal with. And um, because Connecticut has is one of a few states, I think it's about seven or eight states in the country that mandates that all body removal and like transport has to be done by a licensed funeral director. So I knew I had to talk to a funeral director. And I happened to talk to John Carmen, who runs Carmen Funeral Homes, uh, which is a family run business. He started doing it when he was a little kid. Um, helping his dad out with uh, the business. And then he ended up going on to become like the president of the funeral director, like National Funeral Directors Association. And he was in that position when 9-11 happened and he had to dispatch people to deal with, you know, the fallout from that tragedy. And he talked about, you know, his experience and, and his experience in Connecticut dealing with different types of funeral services. He deals with a lot of um, uh, like Hindu, uh, Indian funerals, which have different traditions than like Western, um, like Christian or, you know, Jewish or, um, those types of traditions. So he talked about all these different things that he's had to do and, and the different things that he's learned along the way. And then we also got to talking about sort of the changes, like there's a lot more cremations happening. And my thought was like, oh, well, that's because it's cheaper. Right. And he's like, no, actually it's because people want to take more time. Yeah, they want to take a little time to to breathe, to figure out the plan, to allow relatives who are you know coming from far away to come out. Or he does a lot of repatriation of remains, um, which sometimes requires uh, there to be a cremation involved. And there are a lot of religious traditions that involve cremation. Um, and the in most interesting thing I think I learned from him was that it's not actually that much cheaper to do a cremation ceremony because there are a lot of other elements that people are now choosing to purchase instead. Um, so like the cremation itself is cheaper than traditional burial, but you still have to pay for, you know, burial plots and headstones. And now some people are adding on additional services like uh, web streaming or more photos and videos and things like that, along with the service to make the service more personal. You know, it's uh, it's interesting when you said that people are opting for cremation to give them more time. I, you know, I just, I recall when my, my father passed away just uh, a year ago, um, it was so fast. 
you know, and like that, and like mm-hmm. I sit there and I, I wonder, you know, obviously like, you know, he, he was down South and everything. And, um, my mom was hand, they had, they had pre pre-scheduled, they had made a lot of decisions before this even mm-hmm. happened because they were forward thinking people. But, um, I, it was just, it went by so fast and I sit there and I think like, you know, when you're grieving, God, that's gotta be hard. You know, uh, it, it, it was hard and I didn't even do all the, most of the work, but it was, it was difficult. So I, I, I can see that as being a, a big draw is having that extra time. Yeah. Um, I thought of the similar thing, you know, when, and I was talking to him about this, um, my father died a few years ago and they had done a lot of the planning ahead of time as you did. So once he passed, it was, you know, a long battle with cancer. So it wasn't surprising. Um, so once he actually did pass, they were able to just call the funeral director and everything happened very quickly. It was very smooth. Um, there wasn't a lot of stuff that we had to do. We had to bring a few things to the service and like, obviously we had to go, I had to fly in, you know, from where I was, but, um, but one of the things that it did allow was he grew up somewhere else. Like, you know, we're here in new England and and he grew up in the Midwest. So we were able to like a few weeks later, go to the family cemetery there and have a service with his family after having one with the local family here. So it allowed a lot of different options that, you know, we wouldn't have had otherwise. Um, it also was easier to do the transport because we didn't have to like ship, you know, big crate. We were able to just take um, the urn with us. But obviously there were other things that we were paying for in addition to the, just the cremation itself. Um, and that was the other thing we talk about um, planning. He talks about how like, some people don't like to plan for it. Some people don't like thinking about it and that's fine. But having some sort of plan in place is always easier on your loved ones because they are going through a grieving process and there are a lot of choices to be made. And if you can make those choices ahead of time, uh, it's great. He also mentioned one thing that didn't make it into the story uh, was that he mentioned that for some people, if you're going into hospice care or some kind of um, nursing home or retirement community, if you put the money aside for your funeral expenses early, it is not factored into Medicare. So your Medicare benefits are uh, treated differently when you're going into like a hospice care or a nursing home. That's super interesting. I think we need little tips on the inside. Yeah. Anytime (laughs) that we're talking about this, please consult your financial advisor or about uh, your strategy. Also, uh, yeah, legacy giving, right? That's something as a nonprofit Mm -hmm. uh, we think about uh, quite a bit is how to make sure that people's wishes are, carried on in, in a respectful way after, after they, after they die. Um, man, yeah, there was a lot in there. And I, I think you did a really good job too, bringing out the human element, uh, obviously of what he's dealing with, but some of the anecdotes in there about, you know, Hey, I'd rather be on a golf course than, than planning for this funeral. Yeah. That, that was, that was really well done. Yeah. Um, let's talk about electric vehicles. Uh, this has been a, a hot topic, uh, for a while now. And, you know, I'll, Mark, if you could also, if you don't mind, just kind of give uh, someone saying, you know, too much too soon, but could you also provide the background of what folks are concerned about? What is the debate that's going on in Connecticut, just so we're not jumping in midstream? Sure, sure. So, I mean, I honestly think that, you know, if this if this goes through, it's going to be one of the bigger ongoing stories for Connecticut in the future. I mean, it's going to be a massive infrastructure undertaking. Um and so what happened was back in 2004, Connecticut decided, uh, its legislature voted to become, to, to follow California's emissions regulations as opposed to 
the federal emission regulations. And, you know, Connecticut's one of, I think it's like 13 or 16 states that does so. Uh, and I guess that was all well and good back then. But in 2022, California announced they were going to be phasing out the sale of new gasoline powered vehicles. So between 2027 and I think 2040, they're going to phase out the sale of, of ga- new gasoline powered vehicles. And statutorily, Connecticut it has to follow suit. So uh this issue is a, technically a regulation it's going before the regulation review committee on November 27th i believe uh and that is a bipartisan committee it is split down the middle uh between republicans and democrats and republicans are united in not wanting this to go forward uh the regulation review committee could kill it and so it's it, for for this to be shot down it would it would fall on at least one Democrat member. So anyway, uh, this has obviously drummed up a lot of controversy, uh, whether or not, you know, some of those controversies are, you know, should the state be doing this in the first place? Should we be, you know, essentially banning the sale of new gas powered cars uh, in the future? Uh, Do we have the infrastructure or will we be able to have the infrastructure in time to handle this kind of electric load. I mean, you know, testifying before the regulation review committee uh, back in August, you know, a representative of Eversource said it'd take about 1.5 to 2.4 billion dollars to upgrade the, you know, electrical delivery system in Connecticut. And not only that, Connecticut also has some of the highest electricity rates in the country you know, can you get enough energy into the Northeast to support this? Because it's not even just Connecticut. It's we're also it's Rhode Island and Massachusetts and probably New York. You know, who, you know, there's a lot of different states doing this. Um, and then, of course, you have the arguments about, you know, electric vehicles being more expensive uh, in purchase price anyway. I know you make up some of that in maintenance costs. Um and there's, you know, number, you know, battery performance. I know that's been that's been coming up. You know, the batteries mm-hmm. degrade or they don't work so great in cold weather, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, I went out to there was a press conference held by the Connecticut Energy Marketers Association. They represent the guys selling the gasoline who clearly don't want this to happen. Um, and they were joined by uh, the Motor Transport Association of Connecticut, which are the truckers. Who also don't want to see this happen uh, because under these guidelines, they would be forced to buy battery powered trucks, which at this point don't go very far. Um, they get about 300 miles on a charge. A typical diesel tractor trailer can go 1,400 miles on a single filling. So, you know, their point was A, the trucks are vastly more expensive. You know, a typical tractor trailer is like 150 grand. Compared to an electric one, you're talking 450 to 500 range, um, and they're not going to be able to really go anywhere. I mean, it's one of the uh, a business owner who was there. You know, she pointed out she's she said, you know, the the big thing with environmentalists is you know, is it a it's how does it go? Reuse, recycle. Um, reduce, reuse, reduce, recycle. Oh, reduce. Yeah, and she goes, reduce, she's, reduce, reduce. Yeah, reduce. Thank you. Uh, she's like, this doesn't reduce anything. She goes, we're going to have to make so many more trips. 
plus the weight of the battery in that truck contributes to the overall weight of the truck itself, which means they can carry fewer goods. So there's there's a lot at play here. Um, and you know, it's setting up it's setting up a big political football. Uh, primarily, you know, like I said, you know, Democrats have generally signaled support. There are a few on the fence. Uh, but it's really it, it's a big thing for the Lamont administration. Uh, he he has tried several times now to get some sort of major environmental emissions um, goal passed, you know, over the finish line. Uh, tolls was kind of, you know, kind of related, but not, it wasn't really environmentally focused, but you know, something like the Transportation Climate Initiative, which, you know, he and the Department of Energy and Environmental Protection really pushed for, uh, never materialized. Um, and so this is kind of the next big thing. He sees this as a chance to kind of get this this big hurdle. Uh, and part, part of the issue from what I've been hearing is, you know, Democrats are a little trepidatious about giving him a big no again, you know, after, after a, a, a couple of his big initiative pushes have been answered, you know, have been met with no's. Um, they're a little trepidatious on telling him no again. So that's where we are. And, you know, I know Trisha, you just uh, watched the Republican press conference on this exact same issue. I mean, what did, what did they have to say? They both basically had the exact same arguments um, as the stakeholders, um, mostly because they're trying to, I think, advocate for the, the same issues. So like the there were questions about infrastructure. There were questions about heavy duty trucks and the fact that they would be too heavy, honestly, to get across suspension bridges. Um, there were questions about affordability, about distance that these cars can travel, battery strength. Um, and basically the overall um, the overarching argument was that. We have not seen a plan for how we are going to get to this point in 2020 and 2035. So we need to see a plan because those these questions are not being answered. There is no plan. We're just saying that because we have to follow California and they want Connecticut to now switch to following the federal guidelines. Um, Joe Biden has said that he wants half of all new vehicle purchases by 2030 to be EVs. Um, that, of course, is going to be states with heavy EV purchasing, offsetting states with low EV purchasing. If you ask me, the biggest issue, the thing that we should be focusing on in this conversation is that infrastructure update, is the fact that we do not have the infrastructure to carry a load that would power every single house in Connecticut with an EV. If you assume every single house is going to have one, of course, people can still buy used gas vehicles. If you have a registered gas vehicle in 2035, you're not going to have to throw it away and buy an EV. You can keep buying it. We'll still be selling gas. It's pushing a transition to EVs down the line. You know, um, we don't have that. And and I talked about in an elect in a energy story I did last year, I think I don't remember anymore, um, <laughs> is that basically overall across the board, not just in Connecticut, a push to a greener future means electrifying everything. It means switching to you know, heat source, the heat pumps, air source heat pumps. It means switching to uh, electric, electric powered cars, uh, solar power, anything that we can do to get off of fossil fuels is sort of the idea behind a greener future. But in order to do that, we need to be able to carry a load of electricity to everybody's homes, to all these businesses. So 
it's going to, anything that we do is going to require huge infrastructure updates. And that is the thing that I think is going to loom, as you said, heavy over this entire conversation. It's not going to be as much about the cost of vehicles, which as car manufacturers push toward EVs are probably going to come down. You know, it's not going to be the amount of charging ports because as we have more EVs on the road, we're going to have more charging infrastructure. You know, it incentivizes these infrastructure updates. It's going to be, can we even carry the electric load to power these cars to make every single thing electrified? Um, so that's going to be an interesting conversation that we have going down the line. And uh, yeah, the uh, the board is taking it up in just a couple of weeks and yeah, we'll see where they land, I guess. You know, and obviously the, you know, environmental groups in Connecticut, of which there are many, and there's a lot of people involved with them, have been really pushing you know, the Democrats to get this over the line as well. So it's a, you know, it's tough out there, folks, yeah. <laughs> when it comes to There's a lot of this. pressure to, yeah, there's a lot of pressure to get it done. And there's also, I think a lot of people, especially uh, on the Democrat side, want Connecticut to be leading the charge in a lot of ways, Not no pun intended. Um, and this would allow Connecticut to say that they are, you know, doing what the most aggressive push toward green, uh, you know, green climate infrastructure updates, whatever. Um, you know, so there is also that to take into account. I want to oh, ask yeah. one question before we move on uh, to to the uh, COVID era gun rights case. You mentioned that the committee could kill this. Mm-hmm. And if they did that, does that have ramifications or is that kind of throwing out the whole follow California standard or does that just isolate no. it to this one issue? It's just isolated to this one issue. Um, last year, uh, we passed a bill mandating the emissions for medium and heavy duty trucks to follow California. So there's there's some there's some statutory and regu- regulatory, you know, overlap here. But no, it would not that would not divorce us from California. That would doing that would require a, a legislative act by the General Assembly. I don't think you'll, you know, could if if the Republicans were a majority, yeah, you could probably pull it off, but that's that's probably not going to happen. I'd also encourage folks to go back. We have a deep roster of articles and investigations on the energy topic generally. Uh, in large part, thank you, Tricia, for uh, you know really taking the brunt of that. There's a lot of information from the last couple of years uh, to bring yourself up to speed, but also to look at uh, a lot of these issues in a, in a more granular way. Um, mm-hmm. If it's all right with everyone, I want to move on to this uh, last topic. And that is, uh, Catherine, could you bring us up to date on this? We're, we're going back to an issue during COVID involving gun rights. Uh, and and I actually did have the chance to listen to some of this uh, as well this morning, but uh, you were listening live as it unfolded, as I understand it. Yeah, so this is sort of a really bizarre case, not in the least because, you know, as you mentioned, Connor, this is a, a COVID era case about... Um, It's the uh, Connecticut Citizens Defense League, which is a gun rights advocacy group in the state, um, and a number of individual plaintiffs who are basically charging that their Second Amendment rights were violated because during the pandemic, um, the processing for firearm permit applications, um, which is the the first step in getting a gun in Connecticut, is you need to get fingerprinted at your local police department before you can get a municipal permit to um, have a firearm, before you can get a statewide permit to have a firearm for personal defense, you know, in your home or or something like that. Um, so because, you know, COVID happens and, you know, a lot of um, town 
processes either shut down or were so limited to the point where, you know, things were being processed at, you know, much, much slower rates than we normally would expect. Um, CCDL and these plaintiffs are alleging that their Second Amendment rights were were violated by a number of towns in Connecticut. CCDL is also um, saying that basically because they had to, you know, take a number of issues to court and help these plaintiffs with legal help, that their organization um, was harmed as well. Um, I have to say, based on the oral arguments, I don't know if this was your takeaway, Connor, but I don't think this looks great um, for these organizations. Um, the case has already been dismissed from a lower level court, and yesterday's oral arguments were basically about whether or not it should be taken up again and go forward. Frankly, I don't think the panel of justices that heard the case were very persuaded uh, by their arguments, because again, most of these, indiv- or at least the three individuals who are the feature plaintiffs in this case, have since been able to get gun permits because they did qualify for them. The issue was just, um, you know, the slowdown during COVID. But, you know, other than that, I think the really interesting part of this case is that there is a qualified immunity defense from the town officials who are named as the defendants here. Of course, qualified immunity, I think we're all pretty familiar with as a Supreme Court um, doctrine that they basically invented that says that Government officials are immune from prosecution and claims of harm from citizens if they violate their liberties or their rights in some way, in a way where they have to apply discretion and they are then reasonably protected. Obviously, we hear that a lot in cases where, you know, cops step over the line and do harm to citizens. But um, in this case, the government officials, which are um, namely the police chiefs in the towns that are named in the lawsuit, are claiming um, qualified immunity as a defense. And that is interesting because even if this case were to go forward on the merits, and again, I don't think it's going to, um, you know, one of the, the issues here is, you know, if you're a law-abiding citizen and you otherwise qualify for the ability to get a gun permit, what is the length of time in which government has to do that before they have infringed on your rights? A lot of the big um, gun rights cases that have come out of the Supreme Court in recent years don't touch on that at all. So that potentially could be something that would be decided here if the case were to go forward on the merits. However, because we have a qualified immunity defense from the defendants in this case, that would kind of just shut the case down. And that actual, you know, justiciable argument is something that probably wouldn't be answered even if it went forward in the courts. I have to say, I don't think I've seen a single lawsuit related to what was done during the pandemic actually succeed in Connecticut. I think it, I think they there's been some successes in other states. Like I think, you know, New York had to like hire back a bunch of people they fired for not getting the vaccine or something like that. But in Connecticut, I mean, there were challenges over the business shutdown. There were challenges over, you know, vaccination requirements and all of them just got shut down. So yeah, I mean, and this obviously this one got shut down, you know, shot down initially. So yeah, I, I think it's probably a a long shot. It doesn't seem like any of those COVID cases, uh, those COVID lawsuits, have ever gone anywhere. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, the police powers that states have during times of emergency give them quite a bit of latitude. So you know, a lot of claims of harm aren't necessarily heard or aren't necessarily successful. You know, the other element to these case, this case is most of these individuals now have gun permits. So any harm that potentially was done to them is now basically moot. Gotcha. 
There's also, yeah, Catherine, I agree with you. Uh, the judges were very quick to interject uh, throughout the oral arguments. They were, you know, all over these attorneys trying to make sure that their points were clear. So I didn't see a particular uh, path forward there. The qualified immunity thing, though, uh, is fascinating. Uh, I feel like maybe we should have an attorney on staff, but then I hear Catherine start to get into some of these cases and I'm like, nah, we're good. We're, we're fine. We can deal with the contractors that we have for our legal team right now. And, and we're covered across the board. So she, thank she's, you got that. she's got it. She's got it. She's got it. We'll have her analysis. We'll have yeah. her argue for us in front of court. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Glad that political science degree is doing something. <laughs> there we Absolutely. Uh, wonderful. Um, Cool. Anything else uh, topics wise? We got uh, we're obviously headed into the holiday season here. Uh, this is probably one of the most important times uh, of the year for nonprofit newsrooms, nonprofits generally. But we're in the news and journalism business um, for all of you listening. Of course, your support is what allows us to hire new talent, to produce great journalism, to keep you informed about what's going on in Connecticut please consider donating uh, by going to insideinvestigator.org slash donate. Make sure that uh, all of these wonderful writers uh, are being supported by the infrastructure to allow their work to reach the masses. It is greatly appreciated to all of you who are subscribers, uh, donors, and otherwise help us spread these articles far and wide. Um, Not hearing anything else. If there are other topics, speak up now because I'm about to wrap up. I think I'm Thanks good. We're watching inside the, the inside update. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. And until then, be well, stay safe and stay informed. <laughs>